Welcome to Dice Changers, a podcast where we cover topics related to Dungeons and Dragons and the greater TTRPG space. I'm your host, Aaron, and today we're joined by my love, my life, my heart, Tori, someone I've been trying to get on for months now, but she's just been absolutely book solid. Truly my first choice of company, way better than that Dankles guy. Thank you, Tori, for joining me and writing your own introduction. <laughs> absolutely, Aaron, that's so nice of you to say that I'm I'm better than that Dankles guy. I, I firmly believe that too, so... You know, I think he would also agree with that statement. But Tori, thank you for coming on to my podcast. Can you tell everyone very quickly who you are and where they can find you on the internet? Yeah, my name's Tori. Um, you can, I don't really content create anymore, but for a while I had a stint on TikTok at chaotic underscore silly. So occasionally I'll still post something here and there. So if you want to check it out, I post D&D and uh, MTG content. Absolutely. And you are somebody who I take your opinion very seriously when it comes to things like Dungeons and Dragons and Magic the Gathering. So I had you on this week to talk about something that we're kind of doing a series, I guess, now on the podcast, where we're going into the website TV Tropes and hitting on their archetypal characters page. Uh, And then I allow the guests to pick which archetype of character we're going to talk about. And you pick something very near and dear to your heart. (laughs) What did you pick for us this week, Tori? I picked the classic villains trope and specifically I was looking through the list that you sent me and I think you and and Matt would both agree. I'm not great with media references in general. I have not seen a lot of movies. I've not, I've not really watched a lot of shows. However, I clicked on classic villains and the first thing that popped up was Disney and Pixar villains. And I went, that's the one. You are (laughs) one of two biggest Disney adults that I know. So I feel like you are the like, pinnacle of people to ask about this archetype yeah I I feel like I'm not like the classic Disney adult like I don't go and I don't like Disney bound and stuff but I am very I'm I'm very much a big fan of Disney if I can get down to Florida and get that like resident pricing for Disney I will be there all the time yeah you're like a respectable Disney adult you know there's there's a difference (laughs) between the two There's a Disney adult, and then there's a Disney adult. Oh, my God. That's got the implied, like, hand over brow. (laughs) So since we're talking about all that, can you really quickly define what a classic villain is just for the audience and anybody else who'd like to know? Yeah, absolutely. In general, the villain is typically the foil to the hero, right? It's their polar opposite. Um, Traditionally, it's, like, the main block to the hero's main quest. And I think in current media and some more popular media sometimes it's a more in the shadows person who's kind of laying low manipulating pulling the strings from the back but i think a classic villain is really someone who's up front who's flamboyant who looks different than the rest of the characters you know usually by the way they're dressed right the main character is usually wearing something bright and colorful the villain we all know the classic disney green when something bad is about to happen um it just all just have a exactly everything goes green look at scar right everything just goes green immediately when he comes on the screen so they have an entirely different aesthetic normally there's some sort of layer of deception whether it's tricking the hero themselves or tricking the people around the hero to make the hero's life more difficult in some way they're standing in front of the hero's main journey absolutely and i think that's like the quintessential like the classic villain is like the arch nemesis, the one person that's standing in the way of, of whatever their end goal is. Like you said, it's, it's the exact foil to the hero. And something I really appreciate with this is a lot of the times when people talk about TTRPG, like 
conversations about archetypes, right? If we go to villains, they're going to be talking from a dungeon master's perspective on how to run the NPC villain. But you came to me with a bit of a different take on what you wanted to talk about with villains. I think something really cool that D&D and other TTRPGs allow you to do is one player can work with the DM and be in cahoots and sort of make their own player character into the big bad at the end of the road. Absolutely, they can. And I think that that's a really cool concept because it's not something that a lot of people do and it's not something that a lot of parties will see coming. And then it adds like another layer of conflict and real world repercussions to your game. Yeah, to any actions the party takes, you now have the villain actively working not with you, but as part of your group. And that gives them a whole different level of insight and connection to the story that I find super interesting. Um, With that, one of the things that we always like to mention here is before we get into this, because we're going to be talking about some very creative stuff to do with your villains and like translating a few different archetypal characters from this uh, character archetype into D&D play. One of the things to mention, this is always assuming a baseline of consent between your party, you as a player, and your dungeon master. Something we always like to mention at the beginning of these topics here on Dice Changers is we're assuming a baseline level of consent. It was somewhere on a consent form. Uh, Everybody agreed to it at some point. Right. And I can't honestly imagine anything worse than me playing this character and absolutely falling in love with them and falling in love with the party. And then at the end of the day, the DM just turns you into the bad guy. And then it's arch nemesis, you know, four on one, five on one. And someone comes in and like, now you're public enemy number one and you never really expected it. So yeah, absolutely. Communication is key. You have to trust your GM and your GM has to trust you. Absolutely. Um, So now that we have the baselines out of the way, we know we want to play a character that really defines what a classic villain is. Can you, when getting into the villain, are there any like examples that we want to set the baseline for with this archetype? I think a classic one that was... A very recent example is Cruella DeVille, right? They made the whole Cruella movie and didn't really frame her as a villain. But if you look at classic 101 Dalmatians, the reason people were so mad about the movie is because when you think villain, you think Cruella DeVille. I mean, her name is Cruel Devil. Like, that's actually her name. Literally. Yeah. She has so many aspects of a classic villain. If you look at the way that she dresses, right? She's very flamboyant. She's very big and over the top. She has that puff of smoke around her all the time. She has like the evil looking makeup. Her hair is split into two different colors. She's very unique looking. She has such a definable look that you just have to give the Dalmatians pattern and a sinister sound and people know who you're talking about. Exactly. You throw a little splash of red in there and they're like, oh, I don't like it. (laughs) It Gives me the heebie-jeebies. Um... But I think another thing that a classic villain does is they often embody some sort of sin, quote unquote, or a vice or some sort of like tragic, I don't know if tragic's the right word, but like a kind of a bad characteristic, you know? Yeah, the the page itself that we're discussing today, the, the TV tropes classic villain like thing, I think specifically notes greed, ambition as wrath as three very yep. like particular ones that we see. And you can think of gluttony too, like Cruella DeVille, I think they even mentioned in her bio, she has gluttony, she has lust, you know, nothing is good enough for her. She always wants more, like one Dalmatian skin coat is not enough, like one fur coat's not enough. She wants 101 little Dalmatian puppies and she will not stop until she gets all of them. Which there's a certain level of evil to that of like, no, I can't have full grown Dalmatians. I need Dalmatian I need the puppies. puppies. <laughs> Very specific. I always thought that was weird when yeah. I was a kid. I was like, couldn't you make more coats if you waited for them to get older? 
No. <laughs> we need puppies. We need the puppies. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a great example. Like she she picks something that you're just like, that's just inherently icky, right? Yeah. She's waiting for the puppy, but then you look at the way that she interacts with the characters around her and you realize like she's talking to the owners of the two, you know, parrot Dalmatians and she's manipulating them. She's trying to make them trust her. She's trying to get them to just hand over the puppies. And I think that's another quintessential, like not only does she look evil and like when you look at her, she gives you like the, but But when she she starts talking, right. She acts evil. When she starts talking, it's smooth like butter coming out of her mouth, but you know that there's a sinister twist behind her words. Definitely a charismatic based character. Absolutely. And then you look at her in the end, right? And I think one of the things that happens in a lot of these Disney movies, especially the early ones, is that the the evil character is beaten by their own flaws. Okay. In this one, I actually have not... It's been a few years since I've touched 101 Dalmatians. I forget. How does Cruella get defeated in that film? She's in a car chase. I forget exactly who she's chasing or if someone's chasing her, but she's in a car chase at the very end of the film. I think she's going after puppies or going after something, someone who made her mad, and she just gets in the car crash. And I think that that's, they don't really imply that she dies, but I think (laughs) that that's the implication. She somehow disappears, right, in the middle of this car crash. And it just shows the extent to which she'll go, the extremes to which she'll go to reach her end goal. Absolutely. And to get what it is that she's after. She and like literally... extreme ambition is definitely a trademark of these classic villains. She literally dove headfirst into her own destruction at that point. Exactly. And I think a disregard for their personal safety in pursuit of their goals is another big like post of uh of right. like a classic villain because we talk about Cruella, you know going in a going off getting in a car crash on the on in pursuit of her goal um and i know that there's a couple others who you want to touch later on like we talked about like before the episode um one of the few ones that you named like scar and ursula and these are characters that i'm sure we'll get to are defeated by the things that they were the means they were using to go after the main characters right and even if you don't want to look at that's a very classic Disney thing, I think. And I don't know if they use that to teach little kids like, you know, you have to be self aware, and you have to be a good guy. Because in the end, if you're a bad guy, then you're gonna lose. And it's usually your own fault. But even if you look at classic stuff, like, I don't know, I just watched the Lego Batman movie, right? And so (laughs) (laughs) Lego Batman's great. Lego Batman is fantastic. One of the best made films of all time. Truly. But at the very end, the villains even if they have this big plan and it it actually works and they start wreaking havoc all over the city, Batman defeats them, right? But it's usually because of some oversight that they had on their own part. Like, it's not really always just the hero 100% outsmarting the villain and blah, blah, blah. It's usually something that the villain was just too ambitious about or too in their own head. They didn't even think about, like, this tiny little aspect, like, what if Batman just did this and that would stop my entire plan like they're so in their own head and so chasing after their goals so hard that it just falls apart in their hands okay so we talk about 
you know, we now know what this is, right? The the villain is a flamboyant individual who is seeking their own ambition or greed, and oftentimes they will be out as a direct foil to the main characters. How do we apply this to specifically a TTRPG setting, right? Earlier, you talked about working with the dungeon master. What does that look like? I think it starts with that conversation of, hey, I love your party concept, and I think that this would be a really cool way to incorporate a BBEG that no one sees coming. And starting that conversation and then using different mechanics of the game to reach that end goal. So you can work with the DM. One way you could do it is you could put obstacles in the way of your party from the shadows that they don't know that you're putting in the way and you're helping the party overcome that. And you're gaining their trust in overcoming that obstacle, but it's something small and almost like a distraction from the main plot of whatever your sinister plan is to become the BBEG in the end. You're helping them defeat what's in the left hand, but your main plan is happening in the right hand. I think that those tools are some of the most important to establish. And one of the things that might be hard with that, though, is that it's very hard to use these tools in a way where the rest of the party isn't going to notice, right? You have to be very subtle about using them. You have to be extremely subtle. And I think something cool that I was thinking about earlier is think about combat. And maybe your character wants to make sure that you lose this combat. It doesn't necessarily mean killing off one of your party members. Absolutely. But maybe you work with the DM and say, okay, if we get to this certain damage level, then the enemies are going to back off or something along those lines. But instead of rolling to hit, mm-hmm. you're rolling for deception, right? Ooh, that's really so, good. So you're, I think the online world makes this especially easy where you can all be sitting in a Discord call and you can have your DMs open with mm-hmm. your dungeon master. And your DMs you can with your say, DMs? Yeah, your DMs with your DMs. <laughs> <laughs> And you could say like, oh, I'm going to roll to hit this guy. But that really means you're going to roll deception, swing and miss. Yeah. And maybe sabotage and hit your party member next to you. And so then your DM could say, okay, make the roll. You make the roll. You DM them the real number. That's your deception roll or your performance roll for how good you are at fooling your party into thinking you actually tried to hit. I almost like the idea of like somehow like inverting the role, right? So it's like if you yell natural 20, it's actually a natural one. So you actually actually accidentally like swing into, you know, one of the enemies you're working with. If you yell natural one, that's a natural 20 on one of your teammates. I don't know necessarily how easy it would be to track, but it seems like a fun idea. I think it's as simple as making a table, right? You make a little table and you pull it up while you're in combat and it says 20... If you roll a 20, you say this number. Yeah, exactly. You roll a 19, you say a 2. You roll an 18, you say a 3. Something mm-hmm. like that could be really fun. And it's that's definitely for someone of a more mechanical mind, someone mm-hmm. who's willing to keep track of all of those statistics and and kind of have a more numbers-based deception game. But you can also like make your character do a bunch of side quests. Or lead the party on a bunch of side quests that detract from the Away from the mission. main plot. Yeah, that's such right. a good idea. Is not even go- doing it in such a way that it's a direct action against the party, but literally just giving other bad guys enough time to get their strength together and resources together. Exactly. Like if you have – if your PC is the head of some gang organization, right, and you have option A with your party of going and stopping a small subgroup of your own gang from – doing something bad 
or option B of going on some adventure or some other side quest. You can always lead them down option B. Even if it's an argument amongst your party, you can start mm -hmm. that inner party conflict and That's you can roll up that. You can yeah. make other characters think that it was their idea. Ooh. Like you can work with your other players and say like, hey, you know, I want to make your character think this was their idea. How can I do that? And that's not always a malicious thing either. It can just be a goofing around thing. So in this one, we're talking about just fooling the characters and not the rest of the players. Exactly. Okay. You could just fool the you could just fool the characters. Um, sometimes the players follow suit and they think <laughs> it's just for funsies, and they think you're just trying to be an instigator for the sake of instigating because you're bored, right? Or sometimes that's just what your character looks like. You're just an instigator and you like to cause trouble. That doesn't necessarily mean you're a bad guy, right? For, for some of us, that's easier to pull off than others. Like if you or I are in a party and we're like, I'm just causing shit for fun, people will believe us. If right. Matt says that, immediately suspicious. <laughs> By the way, if, if you don't <laughs> really know the Matt suspicious. we're referring to, we're talking about Denkles, who was on last week's episode of the podcast. And we kind of started this uh, this TV tropes journey with. Yeah, he's he's a good friend of both of ours, so don't mind us poking fun <laughs> we'll at him. We'll pick yeah. Whole episode. <laughs> um, but I know that there are some examples you're wanting to get to of this, so let's go ahead and let's get into it. We're talking about like working at with the DM as the BBEG. Um, mm -hmm. I'm looking at your first example that you're really wanting to touch on. Do you want to jump into that story and kind of explain that character and how you would do something with that in Dungeons and Dragons? Yeah, absolutely. So straying away from the Disney villain trope, you have other examples of villains in you have other examples of villains in media. So if you look at Death Note, you have Light Death Yagami so or L. It's so good. It was one of the first animes I ever watched. And I think that he's a really cool example of a villain because he's one of those guys that just takes it a little bit too far right? He becomes the judge, the jury, and the executioner, and he doesn't necessarily mean to become a villain. But in his search for justice and him having so much ambition, it leads him down this righteous path of justice that it inevitably leads him to being a villain, right? He starts yeah. with the noble pursuit of ridding the city of crime, and he ends up with just killing whoever he wants in order to get himself ahead because he's gone power crazy with the death yeah, note. He, he goes from being a like dark knight character, somebody who does something that's not necessarily the popular option or the kind option, but the necessary option for their noble goals to just being a classic villain of like, right. oh, I want to kill these people because I'm ambitious. I want I right. want to win. And you also see him do this cool thing. You see him kind of play both sides, right? He's working with the police force and gaining the police force trust to catch Kira. But then at the same time, he is Kira. And he's going through and pulling those strings in the background and making them trust him when in reality, he's just becoming more and more villainous the whole time. I think that does lead me to a question, which is if you do have an L in your party, like that rogue detective who's got that expertise and insight who starts catching on, do you pull the trigger on another PC? Do you go that far? I'm sure that's different for every table and people's consent forms. But like you as a person, Tori, do you pull oh, the trigger? Oh, me as a person? I yeah. don't know. I think it depends on how good they are at persuasion versus how good I am at deception, right? Because they might be fooled. But then it's really easy to flip that switch and say, why are you so suspicious? 
Like whoever smelled a Delta, right? Why are you so suspicious? Why do you pin it on me? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And you convince everybody else that they're the issue. No, that's awesome. That's immediately Uno reverse card. You're gonna gonna grow boss all the way. Exactly. No, that's that's amazing. Okay. So yeah, light Yagami, I actually think you're right. That's a good example of someone who worked with the dungeon master to make that work. Like if Light right. Yagami was around in D&D, that's somebody who made it work. And I think that's a really good example. Um, I know that you wanted to talk a little bit about, as well, gaining the trust but becoming an obstacle. Because you mentioned that the villain normally works with the hero in some way. Right. Um, we see that with Light in that he starts supplying information to the police officers and to L to catch Kira. How do you do that with somebody who maybe is less like intrigue based or something that has slightly different goals than catching a villain? So I think that one other way they can do that is by offering something, right? So not necessarily just giving the information and trying to lead them down the wrong path, but by offering incentive to make them believe that you're on their side. So if you look at Ursula, for example, she offers Ariel this whole new world to be able to, no pun intended, (laughs) she offers Ariel exactly what she wants. She offers her to go on land to have feet so she can go and talk to the prince, but it's going to cost her her voice. But to Ariel, that's a small price to pay for getting everything she wants. And then Ursula uses that in retaliation, right? She's like, you didn't care about your voice. You gave it up. You were foolish. Now I'm going to use that against you. And I think that's something that you can absolutely apply to your party. Okay. So this is just an idea of how I would make a PC for this using like kind of what you've set up with the dungeon master. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I was thinking about is that PCs are generally going to be the same level as everyone else in their party. So it's going to be hard to offer something the rest of your party wants unless it's something the DM is specially supplying you with. What might be interesting is use like the promise of future power. So we talk about how like Ursula gave the legs to Ariel, right? Mm -hmm. What if you play like a wizard character who's like, oh, yeah, I used to be a great arch wizard. And then somebody defeated me and I'm level one again. Right. And you have that knowledge of like, I need to get back to my previous power level. What I'm going to do is I'm going to find a group of promising adventurers. I'm going to go, hey, I used to be a great wizard, but this villain struck me down if you help me defeat the villain and get back my powers that curse you have i'll remove that you got polymorphed into a goblin i'll true polymorph you back into an aerocrocra you know i have these wizard powers that i will eventually have in the future and the quest is for you to make me strong again the heroes then feel like they're doing the right thing and you secretly are going i'm gonna just put each of these into a into a what's the name of the spell it's g g e a s i never say it right like, gaius? I, I, I don't know. My brain is yelling gaze. And gaze. That's really not- <laughs> <laughs> no, the gaze are always the answer. Thank you very much. The gaze are always the answer. Can um, I, I know that people say it differently. I'm going to say gaius, even though I know that's not how it's said. Sure. Um, You're asking like- the barbarian man how to pronounce a spell? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Ridiculous. Um, but it's like, oh, I'm going to put all of these people under a permanent dominate person when I get to my main power level. So I'm going right. to win. But it is that interesting thing of then the players are so much more like into the story that they're doing than if it was an NPC that the that the dungeon master was putting forward. Because this is something I think is really important, too, is that players are more likely to be suspicious of an NPC than they are to be a PC because you don't normally have PC villains, right? Exactly. 
And actually building on what you said in offering them something, have you ever played the Shin Megami Tensei games? I have not. So I've only played one of them. I'm not going to act like I'm a subject matter expert, but I've played Shin Megami Tensei 4. Okay. And in that game, to the best of my recollection, you are, as the main character, immediately you die. And a god brings you back to life with the promise of, hey, if you defeat all of these monsters and you help me defeat my enemies, I'll make you a god. And then you get to the end game and Mm -hmm. he says, well, it's either me or them. And you have this group of friends that you've been traveling with. And he says, you can either choose me and become a God or you can choose them. And if you choose them, you have to fight the God. And if you choose me, or I'm sorry, if you choose the God, then you have to fight your friends. No, it it makes sense that you'd confuse those you and God. They're very similar, you know. Obviously, Yeah, 100%. You you with your your very (laughs) large narcissism (laughs) complex. No, that's that's that sounds exactly like me, actually. Yeah, <laughs> and I think that is one of the things that it's an age-old practice, right? For dungeon masters, where it's offering the party something that they want, and for a player to do that is totally fair game, um, because it's even less manipulative than if we were to say lie about everything, like we were talking about earlier. It's right. like no, no, no. They can think I'm morally gray, even though I'm evil. They're just still going to help me because I'm giving them something that they want. And they don't realize that I'm the villain, even if they realize I'm not the hero, right? And honestly, it feels like you could even make that PC think that they're not the villain. Right? Right? It could just be something that, you know, maybe they were defeated by another arch wizard for better, but they thought it was for worse. And they think that they're genuinely making the world better by doing whatever they're doing. And so they're promising... With the intention of fulfilling that, but then when it comes down to the end, they're foiled by the same selfishness that they were the first time they were defeated. Now that I think about it, right, of the four villains we've mentioned thus far, Cruella de Vil, Light Yagami, um, Ursula, and we talked a little bit about Scar from The Lion King. Right. Only I think one of those actually saw themselves as the villain, which was Scar. I think the other three just had a sense of superiority or entitlement, right? Because like you go to Light Yagami, he's like... I want to rule the world because I'm going to do it better than everybody else. It's that sense of superiority. But then you look at like Scar and Cruella DeVille. It was just entitlement, right? They thought they deserved those things that they wanted. And three out of those four people did not see themselves as the villain. Now, Ursula is a little bit more complex. And I think Ursula definitely knew she was the villain. She knew she was like. Yeah. And there's an internet argument that's been made that she's just misunderstood, right? (laughs) But. When it boils down to it, she, she is, is the villain, villain. Yeah. and she knows that she's the villain. How she got there, that could be up for debate. Oh, yeah. Having a but... tragic backstory does not mean you're not the villain. <laughs> right. Exactly. Because, like, there, I know that a lot of the argument is based off of, like, how Ursula got to be how she is. Right. But at the end of the day, when you are manipulating people into one-sided deals where they become your servants that you eventually eat... That's gonna be right. you're the you're the that's villain. That's a little villainous. That's a yeah. that's a Am little I the dirty. drama. <laughs> I don't think I'm the drama. I don't think I'm the villain. <laughs> but to the opposite point of that, someone who accidentally becomes the villain, right? So not necessarily Scar and Light, who have this complex that they are doing good, but actually they're evil. Yeah. Someone who maybe finds a cursed weapon. And it speaks to them and it helps them along their evil path. You know what I mean? Take a look at Grog from Crit Roll Season 1. Okay. okay. He finds Craven Edge, right? Well, he takes Craven Edge from the corpse of a vampire. But, you know, tomato, tomato. 
he quote unquote finds. He finds much. it in the way most D and D players find things, you know, exactly. by killing the person who owned it previously. It was placed in his path <laughs> of destruction that he caused. But anyway, um, he picks up Craven Edge and the blade just starts possessing him, right? It starts feeding him these dark thoughts. It starts kind of devouring his soul a bit. It just starts nibbling. seeping in, just nibbling, just a little taste, just a little. <laughs> uh, it, starts, <laughs> it starts to kind of creep in and take over. And he doesn't even know he's becoming the villain, right? He doesn't know that he's going against the party. And in his mind, he's not going against the party. But there's some outside factor that's pressing on him to become that enemy for the uh, to become that enemy for the yeah, party. Yeah, because with Grog specifically, it was simply that the, the weapon made him want to kill more and more. So it was like in combat, he would go a little too far and then he would hit a party right. member. And it's like, oh, I hit a party member. Oops. Sorry. Sorry. And Miss luckily, Wayne. luckily before it got too far is when that started. On, spoilers for like an eight-year-old campaign. Um, luckily, it was before it got too far that Grog died as a result of Craven Edge. And that was broken, right? That bond. Right. But had that continued, that could have made a very interesting villain. Right. So even if you don't necessarily want to deceive your party, but you do want to be the foil to the party in some way, you can work with your DM and say, hey, what about some sort of weapon, some sort of artifact, some sort of item that the party happens to find? We get sketchy vibes, but we don't necessarily know the true power. And it becomes the thing that makes me the big bad. Absolutely. That could be better for someone who maybe isn't as comfortable deceiving their party members or someone who just wants to try their hand with a magic artifact. Um, for any dungeon masters who are listening, because I generally dissuade players from asking for like specific magic items in campaign. But if you're wanting or if you have a player who's wanting to try something like this and you don't know where to start, I think there's a very classic Dungeons and Dragons artifact that exists. Uh, it's called Black Razor. Um, it's been around since I think like second or third edition. It is a like plus three longsword that is sentient, like a lot of the weapons we're talking about, like Craven Edge from uh, Critical Role. And essentially, Black Razor has the effect of I eat the souls of the people who you kill with me, and he needs to be fed. He needs to eat every like day or so. Mm -hmm. um, and if you want like a player to slowly become a villain or give them something that will turn them into a villain, and the player is interested in pursuing that, and the party's okay with it, Black Razor is a great artifact to start with. I forget if it's been published in 5th edition. I think at some point it has. Um, it would be in the Dungeon Master's Guide if it has been. You know, I'm actually going to look that up, be back in 3, 2, 1. So as it turns out, Black Razor... I don't believe is in 5th edition at the moment. If it is, feel free to tweet at Dice Changers and let me know that it is. Um, but it did exist in previous editions like 3rd edition. Now, there's a lot of different places you can go to find information on Black Razor. So if you just Google Black Razor, it'll come up. And there's some people's interpretations of what it should look like in 5th edition. But I think it's a really good starting place if you're wanting to do what Tori's saying and do like an artifact or something like that. Okay, well... So sorry again for interrupting you, Tori. I appreciate you letting me go on my search for Black Razor because that did take a couple minutes. But since it seems like we've gone through a lot of your notes, I do want to hear how you would build one of these characters. Because I talked about I would be like, all right, I'm going to be an evil wizard who's ready to polymorph and wish my way to success. But how would you build one of these characters? 
I think I would build someone that just doesn't know any better. Someone who's a little naive, someone who's never really been out in the world and they see something that's a really good opportunity and they just follow that path without thinking of the repercussions. And honestly, Aaron, I could see like an alternate universe where Denny does this, right? So I have this character in a campaign that Aaron runs who is a little guy. He's a little dude. I love him. He's a little guy, a little dude. Um, he's a gunslinger who just wants to build things and he just wants to be a little engineer. And he recently got this ring that has an all powerful archmage locked inside of it named Kyder. I, I don't know if you can see this pattern between what I just said I would build and what Tori's <laughs> telling me is in my own campaign. I think I might like ancient arch wizards for some yeah, reason. A little bit. Yeah. Wild. I don't know where you draw that conclusion from, but <laughs> no, but it could be really cool in an alternate timeline. I can't see myself doing this with Denny in particular, but I think if I were to intentionally build a character who were to become the BBEG, I would work with the DM to have this sort of, hey, this archwizard is going to give me everything I want, everything I'm after. I want to be a famous mechanic. I want to be able to build weapons. I want to be able to provide for my ginormous family um, using Denny as an example, of course. Yeah, because Denny has, what is it, like five or six siblings? Five or six. He's he's the youngest of eight. Of, that's what it is. Yeah. yeah it's been a while since I've had to peek at your boy. backstory. So yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, he's the little baby boy. But he also has, you know, nieces, nephews, his parents. Yeah, there are easily 20 stuff. NPCs in the document that you gave me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So having someone who maybe isn't necessarily evil, but is definitely selfish, come into his life and say, hey, I can give you all of that if you free me from this ring and <laughs> you build me a body and you do all of these things. And I think Denny is a little bit resistant to that because I think that his party has helped him kind of see, especially with that thing that was living in his head. Oh, uh, yeah. He's kind of seen a little bit of the bad side of the world. But I think if he was fresh out the gate, that was the first thing he ever found. He was this new little adventurer, just excited to be on the road with his friends. And he got this ring that said, hey, you can keep doing all of that. But I'm going to need you to do X, Y, and Z along the way so that eventually you can get me out of this ring and I can give it to you. I think that would be a really cool thing because you're not necessarily going about it with malicious intent, but you do have that ulterior motive. So for anyone who's curious, what Tori is referring to when she talks about Kair and the ring is there is an item in the Dungeon Master's Guide known as the Ring of Mind Shielding, which has a funny little quirk on it. When you find <laughs> it, that says you roll a die, and if you roll the right number, there is already the mind of someone who previously wore the ring living in it, in that they were wearing the ring when they died and their mind got sucked in. And Tori found, as she said, an all-powerful archmage named Kair living in the ring who just desperately wants to come back to life. So Kair keeps offering to her character, Denny, that if Denny finds a way to resurrect Kair, Kair will literally use the wish spell for Denny um, just because that's that she has the ability to do so. Right. And I think there's some level of trust that goes into that too, right? <laughs> yep. He doesn't have any evidence of this. He has no evidence that Kair is good. He nope. has no evidence that Kair has any of this power. Nope. But little naive boy follows that path anyway. Exactly. Because he doesn't perceive evil in people. So I think that that's probably how I would go about it is make little naive boy because I don't think that 
Aaron, you know me. I don't think I'd do well as the evil, manipulative, <laughs> sneaky kind. Absolutely not. I'm a you, horrible you would, liar. You would break after <laughs> half a session. That's um, correct. I would just be too excited. I want to tell everybody what the plan is. <laughs> I'm a yeah. horrible secret keeper. With, like, Kair especially, too, right? Denver, Denny, the character who you currently play, already recognizes that with Kair, looking at this, at best, it's a monkey's paw. At best, the wish is going to come with certain things that he is not prepared to deal with. Right. Genie in a bottle, you weren't specific enough. Exactly. But then you look at, like, any other character. There are several other members of the party as they exist that I think, if they had been given an all-powerful Archmage, like, you're traveling with an NPC right now, uh, or were when <laughs> Denny was, was with the party. Denny's taking a bit of a break from the party. Um, but who absolutely would have been like, oh, yeah, you can give me knowledge? Yeah, let's do this immediately. Let's do it right now. Right yeah. now. Exactly. So I think that is a really good starting point is having like a naive character, especially because yeah. I love that our two characters have to work together. The one that I made and yours, it's like I have this all-powerful yeah. Archmage who needs to get powerful again, and you have this naive character that I'm going to manipulate to getting there. They really it's are a symbiotic the... relationship. Well, it's the Slytherin Hufflepuff join, you know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> yeah sure. <laughs> but I think it would be really interesting in the end, too, to have that Shin Megami Tensei moment where you know, Denny might succeed and get Kair out of the ring, and now mm-hmm. Kair says, okay, it's me or them. And yeah, he has either, to turn on the party, either. and that's how he becomes the BBEG. Not necessarily willingly, but reluctantly, because it's what he has to do mm-hmm. for his family. Absolutely. Or for his reputation, or whatever he chooses to to choose. Yeah, so we did. We are missing a big part of both of our story's narrative. Because we talked about the classic villain archetype, is that they're always defeated by their own greed and i think it's a pretty obvious line to draw how my character who is manipulating your character is going to lose right um and i think that that is that you are going to kill me when i make you choose between you and your friends exactly like i think denny in the end would probably say no that's silly like this wasn't the deal and will enlist the help of his friends to defeat kair however i think if someone wanted to go about this kind of concept and intentionally be the BBEG in the end, that would be an awesome way to do it. You now have this all powerful Archmage on your side. Are you kidding? Absolutely. hundred percent. So thank you so much, Tori. With that, I think we've kind of hit where we were going to talk about this. Thank you so much for joining me once yeah, again, real quick. Oh, hundred percent. Um, once again, real quick, can you tell anyone where they can find you on the internet? If they're curious and anything else you might want to shout out. Absolutely. So if you're looking for me, you can find me on TikTok at chaotic underscore silly. I do D&D memes, uh, Magic the Gathering memes. I'm, I'm there for a good time, not a long time. So it's infrequent that I post. But if you do want to support something that I really care about, one of my good, good friends, Saf, has a line of D&D themed streetwear called Arcane Wears. So it's, it's so good. It's so good. I have almost everything in her store. I can't stop buying it. It's so good. Um, it's Arcane Wares, W-A-R-E-S. Mm-hmm. You can find it online at arcanewares.com. Um, she did just expand shipping, I believe, to Canada as well Ooh. and possibly the UK. If not yet, then that's coming soon. Um, everything she owns and everything she produces is designed by her. It's it's her own locally owned company. And she has the softest shirts, the most comfortable sweatshirts, the cutest hats. Yeah, I I have one of the um, the Dex Dave long sleeve. It's so good. Yeah. Um, 
Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on, Tori. I appreciate that. If you guys would like to listen to this podcast a day early, don't forget to check out patreon.com slash obsidianolive, uh, where we post episodes every Monday at 7 p.m. PST. Or if you're listening to it now on Spotify, remember episodes come out at 11 a.m. PST on Tuesdays at Spotify. Thank you once again for joining me, Tori. And goodbye, yeah, everybody. Goodbye. Don't forget I'm better than Nichols. Okay, bye. <laughs>